It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 228 for February 6th, 2010, recorded February 4th. February, my favorite month to say. I should have done the library story this month, then we could have had the library in February. Oh well. Here's another suite for your office. Microsoft, of course, may own the desktop, but it seems that its grip is weakening a bit. WordPerfect Office relegated to a distant second place as Windows machines replaced DOS machines now seems at best to be an also-ran. That's sad for those of us who loved DOS version 5.1. But the world has moved on. OpenOffice has been in contention for several years but has largely failed to catch on. Now there's LibreOffice. Maybe it'll have a better chance. LibreOffice is what's called a fork application, so-called because developers of an application chose to go different directions. The code base splits, just as a road might split, and the new versions no longer share a complete code base. Here's how that happened. In late 2010, some of the members of the OpenOffice project created the Document Foundation. At the time, OpenOffice was testing beta version 3.3, and there was a concern that Oracle, which had acquired Sun Microsystems, would shut down OpenOffice. It had already done that to Open Solaris. Oracle doesn't like competitors with free products that compete with its expensive products. The developers invited Oracle to join the Document Foundation. Oracle slammed the door, not only refusing, but also demanding that all members of its OpenOffice board on the Document Foundation resign. So, now LibreOffice exists as a product you can't buy, but you can download and use for free. The Document Foundation's goal is a lofty one, to create a vendor-agnostic office suite with open document format support, that's ODF, and without any copyright assignment requirements. Canonical, which makes the Ubuntu distribution of Linux, Novell, and Red Hat, will all include LibreOffice in their operating systems. Development continued through most of January, and the first stable version was released on January 25th. Current versions of these free applications can open many Microsoft documents, but may not always be able to save files in a Microsoft format. LibreOffice Base, the database application, can open current and older Access database files, but then must save those files in an open database format with an ODB extension. In Writer, some of the dialog boxes have been greatly improved, as has document navigation. LibreOffice Calc works better now with Excel files, and it can import spreadsheets with up to one million rows. Still not as big as what Excel will do, but very few people need spreadsheets with more than a million rows. LibreOffice Math is a freestanding equation editor. The user writes a description of the formula, and the equation editor displays it. The resulting equation can be saved and presumably inserted into a document. I couldn't find a way to do that, but math can be opened from inside Writer, and the resulting equation is placed in the document. As you probably expect, you'll see some screenshots showing how these things work on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. 
LibreOffice requires the Java runtime environment, that's JRE. This, unfortunately, is not mentioned during the installation, and the installer doesn't include it. JRE is easy enough to obtain, it may already be installed on your system, but it really should have been mentioned in the instructions. The installation is also hampered by forcing the user to download and install two components, although this is not clearly explained on the website. You need the LibreOffice installer and what's referred to as the Help Pack. These are the help files in U.S. English, and if you don't install the Help Pack, then the Help menu looks to the LibreOffice website for help instead of to files on your computer. That's okay, but it's slow. Users may include scalable vector graphic images in writer documents, and these may be edited in the LibreOffice Draw component. I'll talk about that in a moment. Somewhat inexplicable is a decision by the developers to add support for Lotus Word Pro files and to improve support for old WordPerfect files. Even stranger is the ability to open Microsoft Works documents. Works hasn't been distributed since about 2002. And for those who can't quite figure out how to create a title page, Writer has a function to help with that. Besides the ability in Calc to open larger spreadsheets, many Excel keyboard shortcuts now work in the application. Calc also offers three ways of displaying the cell location, what's called Calc A1, Excel A1, and Excel R1C1. The Calc A1 and Excel A1 formats seem to be identical in that they list the column first, ABC, and then the row, 1, 2, or 3. The other option, the Excel R1C1 format, is more verbose. It lists the row first, preceded by an R, and then the column preceded by a C. Unless you manually type formulas, it probably doesn't matter much which one you use. The default is the shorter A1 format. Although Calc can honor Excel's conditional formatting, it has the same limitations that Excel had prior to the 2010 version, that means that it recognizes only three conditional statements. Impress, the presentation program, continues to be not particularly impressive, but it does cover the basics, and a new presenter console adds the ability for the presenter to see one view on a notebook, while people watching the presentation via a projector see something else. That's the same feature that PowerPoint had starting with the 2003 version. LibreOffice Base, as I mentioned earlier, can open access databases, but then must save the document in an open database format before it can really be used. Additionally, the open dialog includes several questions that will puzzle most users. Do you want to register the database? And following the import, do you want to open the database or the table designer? The defaults are register and open the database, which are correct for most uses. Unfortunately, there is no analog to Microsoft OneNote in LibreOffice, and OneNote is one of the best and most useful additions to Office, even though for reasons that are opaque, Microsoft elected not to include OneNote in most versions of the Office suite. LibreOffice Draw is a limited vector drawing application. In 1993, it would have been quite impressive. Today, not so much. The bottom line for LibreOffice, an inexpensive office suite, but it might be adequate. Sometimes good enough is good enough. LibreOffice isn't outstanding on any count, but the cost, free, is welcome. 
And if you need little more than basic functionality, you can save some money this way. Three cats. For more information, visit the LibreOffice website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You may have been under the impression that the Department of Homeland Security was mainly the take-your-shoes-off agency, the TSA folks, or one of the other agencies designated to protect the nation from terrorism or help with recovery following a natural disaster. But it seems the Department of Homeland Security is seriously concerned about streaming video. Really? And this week, the agency seized a bunch of domain names to keep them from illegally streaming the Fox Network's Super Bowl. I wonder if these guys have ever heard of due process. These guys, by the way, are ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. I'm still trying to find a connection between immigration and streaming video. But I'm sure somebody at ICE sees some connection there. Some of the nabbed domains are channelsurfing.net, hqstreams.com and .net, at dhe.net, rojadirectica.com and .org, firstrow.net, and several spellings of elemi.com. Several of the domains are already back, but with different names. Many of the sites are physically located outside the United States. Ah, that's it. Maybe the electrons on a wire are considered to be tiny illegal immigrants. I keep thinking that ICE and the entire DHS should have more important things to do. Things like converting the theater of airline security into actual airline security, or finding a way to examine more than just a tiny number of cargo containers that arrive every day. Or if they want to secure the Internet, maybe they could find a way to stop spam. Late last year, ICE seized 80 other domains, that's 8080, 80 other domains that agents said were being used to sell counterfeit goods. That seizure was conducted on Cyber Monday, the day that people supposedly go wild and place online orders for all their holiday gifts. But then Homeland Security has always had a good sense of theatrics, even if there's not a lot of substance behind it. What's particularly troubling is DHS's policy of taking action against sites they consider to be illegal without what would seem to be due process. Site owners are not contacted in advance. They are given no opportunity to defend themselves. A simple warrant from a district court judge allows ICE to take over control of domain names. Does this all sound a little like censorship? As a follow-up to the previous story, I have a better idea for Homeland Security. Software security company PC Tools reminds us that big events such as the Super Bowl often attract online criminals. And online criminals attract PR folks from software security companies like PC Tools. Maybe instead of trying to stop a little online video filching, DHS could concentrate on the real criminals. I've heard this justification almost verbatim. If an online program costs $49 to view and one million people view it for free, that costs tax dollars and jobs. Well, that sounds reasonable, but it really doesn't pan out. Tax dollars, yes. Jobs, no. If five million people watch a program instead of one million people, no jobs will be saved, no jobs will be created. The company presenting the program will make more money, and the government will see more tax revenue. But that's where the buck stops. And really, 
If one million people watch it for free and the free option goes away, most of those one million people won't watch it. They won't pay the $49. They'll just skip it. But I digress. The folks at PC Tools say we should expect, and I quote, record-breaking numbers of online threats and cyber attacks related to Super Sunday as compared to other holidays or events. It's true that lots of advertisers relate their ads to websites, and a lot of people do log on during or after the game. And Prior to the game, a lot of people use their computers to research the players or the teams. Because of this, says PC Tools, cyber criminals target Super Sunday as more football fan-related ads, commercials, and betting sites explode on the Internet. And you know how messy it is when things explode on the Internet. All of those electrons just have to be taken out of service and painstakingly cleaned by hand. PC Tools notes that an account in Ad Age predicts that advertisers will use social media at record levels during the game. Now, there's a surprise. We'll also see, and I quote, increased numbers of fake ads targeting young males. Click the provided link and you may end up on a malicious website. To protect users' privacy and safeguard their personal information, browser companies are developing new technologies to restrict the transmission of personal data. And PC Tools recommends running up-to-date antivirus and security software for greater protection. Aha! You knew they had to get the sales pitch in there sooner or later, right? Well, they're right, of course. You do need good security applications installed on your computer. And it's important to be aware of your surroundings, just as you would be if you were walking in an unfamiliar area of a large city. But somehow I keep thinking that the Department of Homeland Security would be much more effective if it decided to go after some of the real cyber criminals. In short circuits, you want a Verizon iPhone? Well, you're too late this week. If you want an iPhone, you have a choice now. AT&T finally has some competition. Verizon started selling pre-order phones this week, and all available pre-sale models sold out within a day. According to Verizon, demand was greater than for any previous release, beating both the Motorola Droid and Droid X. In fact, that happened in the first two hours. That brief period beat Verizon's previous best-ever launch. Pre-sales were for people who qualified for the program. Next week, anybody who wants a phone can buy one. But should you? You'll have to pay to break your AT&T contract if you have one. In addition, the Verizon model is a third-generation phone instead of the faster fourth-generation used by AT&T. Verizon is upgrading its network, but when that happens, you'll need to buy a new phone. Both Apple's and Verizon's websites will resume selling the phones at 3 in the morning next Wednesday. You'll also be able to find them in Apple and Verizon stores at Best Buy and in some Walmart stores. Complaints about dropped calls on AT&T's network have been widespread. Legion, perhaps, would not be an overstatement. And those who have tested the Verizon version of the iPhone say that this is not a problem on that network. That may change when millions of new users start flooding Verizon's network with data and voice. AOL's quarterly advertising income dropped by a quarter in the most recent quarter. Lots of quarters in that sentence. Actually, 26%. Even so, AOL's CEO Tim Armstrong says he expects to see some growth this year in advertising. AOL's stock prices dropped 5% on Wednesday. Armstrong says it's time to stop working on the turnaround and start working on the comeback. This is supposed to lead to growth in the second half of 2011. 
By lowering expenses, AOL was able to report fourth-quarter earnings of $66.2 million, or $0.61 a share. That's a considerable improvement from a year ago when AOL earned $1.4 million. AOL acquired Time Warner at the height of the Internet bubble, but Time Warner recovered and spun off AOL. In the past year, AOL has made a number of acquisitions, including technology blog TechCrunch for about $30 million. In addition, AOL has set aside $50 million to expand Patch to a total of 500 local community sites by the end of the year. Trouble isn't just in the streets in Egypt. Those supporting anti-government protests shut down government websites this week. A worldwide anonymous group that goes by the name Anonymous shut down the sites belonging to the Ministry of Information and President Hosni Mubarak's National Democratic Party. The group is believed to have about 500 members. Last month, the same group claimed responsibility for shutting down websites that belonged to the government of Tunisia. And it also attacked sites owned by MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal after those companies refused to process donations to WikiLeaks. The Egyptian government shut down the Internet when street demonstrations began, and the group tried to turn the tables on the Mubarak administration. Members of Anonymous have been arrested and their equipment has been confiscated in Britain, Netherlands, Sweden, Germany, and France. The FBI has also obtained several dozen search warrants. If found and convicted, those who launch distributed denial-of-service attacks could spend 10 years in prison. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.